Turn to Psalm 6. Psalm 6. Let's turn our attention in prayer to our God. O Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the light that you have given us in this, your word. Even as we, like the psalmist, will struggle in darkness and shadows and difficulty, we know that there is light from your word, that your word is light. Help us to see it and help us to see because of it, we pray. Amen. Psalm 6, hear now the word of God. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I'm amazed at how providential every sermon seems to be. These are not part of my prepared remarks, but I have just been thinking about how providential, how timely God is. I chose this psalm a year ago for this day, not knowing what we would be going through as a church, not knowing what we would be going through as individual families. Same thing with the book of Judges. I found it to be more immediately relevant than I had anticipated. But that is just how the Lord works, isn't it? The Lord's timing is perfect. And I hope you'll see the relevance of this text, this sermon this evening, because we carry on where we left off last year. Recall the series I began, it was a, supposed to be a 20-year project of summer in the Psalms, taking in the summer just a handful of Psalms. You'll no doubt remember from last summer, of course you, of course not, that from Psalms 3 and 4, David was separated from the house of God. Because of his son Absalom, he was driven out of Jerusalem. Remember that. 
Psalm 3 is a psalm for the morning, Psalm 4 for the evening, Psalm 5 for the morning, Psalm 6 for the evening. And here we even see just from these four psalms that rhythm of the worshiper. He is to wake up with faith before God, wake up with a song in his heart, and he is to close the day in the same way before his God, before his maker, before his redeemer. This psalm is the first of what are called the penitential psalms. There are seven of them in in the psalms, and they are uh, some of these psalms that you be familiar with. would be Psalm 32 or Psalm 38, or most notably Psalm 51, which is in the background of this psalm, that psalm in which David confesses his sin to the Lord, his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, his sin ultimately against God. So this is... One of those. This is the first of those penitential psalms, so-called because in the penitential psalms, the psalmist acknowledges his own sin and the great need of forgiveness. In this psalm, David pours out his heart, empties his eyes even before his God. But as a reader of the psalm, we should ask, what does the Lord do? to so tearful a saint? How does the Lord respond to so mournful a believer? It's clear in this text that the Lord does not rebuke, but receives our tears of trust in Him as deliverer. Every discerning spouse, parent, elder knows that not every tear is a godly tear. There is a reason we may refer to someone's crying as crocodile tears and say, I don't want those crocodile tears. Don't give me those crocodile tears. This this phrase comes from apparently the ancient belief that crocodiles would shed tears as they were eating their prey. And you say, that's a hypocritical hypocritical crocodile. How could you cry over the thing you're eating? I guess their, their eyes just water as they are consuming the prey. So we say, don't give me those crocodile tears. Those are fake tears. You're not really sorry. It's true. Sometimes the offender is in tears to distract from his real offense, from his sinful contribution to the problem. And of course, wisdom then is necessary to discern true godliness. We can't always look at the tears. But we don't have a case of the crocodiles here. We have real tears And these real tears flow from, you could say, two rivers, sin and suffering. Why does David ask not to be rebuked or disciplined in God's wrath? It is, as is clear, because of his sin. When we read Psalm 6 in light of Psalms 3 through 5, that reading pulls Psalm 51 into the picture. David had sinned grievously, horrifically, really, if we are honest with the man, if we're honest with the text, if we're honest with sin. David's actions were abominable. Just consider, if any man here committed adultery, tried to cover it up, and even manipulated the murder of the real, true husband, not only would this man be excommunicated, if unrepentant, but even the state would be involved. He would likely be in jail, perhaps even for the rest of his life. And even if there were forgiveness granted, 
having an ongoing relationship with the man would be difficult. Not impossible, because forgiveness can do a lot. But certainly it would be difficult to have a deep relationship with someone like that. Adultery, murder, the death of a child born from this sinful union, such source of much grief. And remember, after Nathan rebuked David, the kingdom, Nathan said, the prophet said, would be full of inner turmoil. And so it is. So it was. Amnon abuses Tamar, only to be murdered by Absalom, only for Absalom to try to steal the throne from David. Do we wonder why David would plead with God not to deal with him in his wrath? I don't know if I shared this with you. I probably did. But I remember in seminary taking a class on biblical sexuality. All of us students had to, uh, had to write down specific consequences if we had committed adultery. Like, hypothetically speaking, if, if we were to commit adultery, what would be the natural, reasonable consequences of that sin? And the professor had us write down not just a, a handful of reasons, he had us come up with either 75 or 100 reasons if we were unfaithful to our spouse. The effect that our lives would have, the, the ministry, families. It really forced us, this assignment really forced us to be very clear about the damage, but the sorrow that our own one sin would have caused. Can you think of past sins over which you have cried? Even when there has been forgiveness, perhaps some come to, the, come to your mind now. Perhaps something that you don't ever want to speak of again, because it is just so awful, so wicked, and you hate that you did it. If it does come up, what does a forgiven heart do? The forgiven heart doesn't say, well, that sin was forgiven. And so I don't need to think about it anymore. No. The forgiven heart, as God brings that sin to our recall, to our memory, the forgiven heart says, the, the, the forgiven heart grieves, can still cry out to God, can still think about how sinful that was, how awful a period that was or habit that was the effect that's then had on the family can still grieve and still cry out to the Lord. The Lord, as we saw this morning in Judges 20, the Lord uses suffering to humble us. And surely Israel and Benjamin were sinners. The Lord can recall even their own past sins that they would Cry out to the Lord, asking to be more and more humbled. Asking that as they remember this grievous sin, that they wouldn't return to it. That God would use that memory as a warning not to go back to the sinful way. And God can bring that to our minds as a pointer to rest in His grace. Even now, even as we remember the, the heartache, even as we experience the heartache of that past sin. It could be our own sin or it could be the sin of another. Well, the other source from which these tears flow is David's own suffering. 
And this suffering comes from his own sin, and it comes from the attacks of his foes. David did suffer temporary chastisement because of his sins. And when we suffer, it is sometimes right to see a connection of that suffering to our sin. John Calvin said, Men who do not take a calm and cool view of their sins in order thereby to produce the conviction that they have deserved the wrath of God are not making good use of their sufferings. Our suffering, sometimes because of our own sin, again, is meant to humble us. If David had not sinned against God, if David had not sinned against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against the whole kingdom of Israel, would there have been, would there have been a death of the child? No. In fact, there, there actually wouldn't have been a child. Would there have been inner turmoil in the kingdom? No. There wouldn't have been that infighting. But that is the consequence. That's the connection between David's own sin and the kingdom, and David's own suffering. If an employee steals company time and money, can we, can we call his employer unjust if the employee is fired? The employee experiences suffering, a loss of job. Well, that's because he stole money, stole company time. But do we challenge the employee's salvation if he's, if he's a believer? Say, well... He must not be a believer because he stole. This one sin challenges his salvation status. He's lost his salvation. No, we don't need to say that. But we can say that his suffering is because of his own sin. Calvin himself practiced what he preached whenever he struggled with his suffering in his own life, which was almost always. He would regularly quote the Latin of verse 3, Tu domine, usque quo. Oh, Lord, how long? And we don't need to be so introspective that we're always trying to look for that one sin that is the cause of everything else. We don't need to have that board with the yarn and all the thumbtacks and try to connect all the dots. Here's all the suffering and, you know, those crazy-eyed guys. Just, Here it is. Here's, I did this sin, and so I'm suffering that way. I did this sin, I'm suffering that way. We don't need to do that. That's not what I'm calling for. That's not what God is calling for. But honestly, I think we tend to be overly quick just to say, well, well, God forgives, than to do the hard work of investigating our own hearts, to do the work of a godly confession, to do the hard work, godly work of repentance, putting off sin and putting on righteous ways is hard, godly work. If it were really easy, we'd be fully sanctified, wouldn't we? And yet, the Bible tells us to strive after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that this is God's will for you, your sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality, and all the rest. Sometimes we just have too low a view of God's forgiveness or too low a view of our sin. Yeah, God forgives. Good thing I don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, it is a good thing that you're forgiven. Do you want to keep doing what you've been doing? 
If you remember that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, lived and died, was raised from the dead for you? You want to keep returning to the sin? No, you want to be more like Jesus. We all want to be more like Jesus. But through all of this, there is assurance that Christ suffered for all of David's sins. There's assurance that Christ suffered for all of Calvin's sins, that Christ suffered for all of your and my sins. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5 says that he has borne our griefs, that he was pierced for our transgressions. Upon Christ was the chastisement that brought us peace. He took it. He paid it all. And so, yes, sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. And sometimes we suffer because of the sins of another, because of the attacks of our enemies. David's sin was used against him. But David was also unjustly treated by his enemies. David's enemies were certain that he would die because of the sins that he may have committed. And in this way, David shares in Job's sufferings and sorrows as well. It is never pleasant when your enemies have just cause to throw your sin in your face. Sometimes you just say, yep, you're right. You got me there. I, I did that. Other times they think that you have sinned, think that you have done something wrong. In reality, you haven't. Even Satan, our accuser, has tried to build a strong case against us. There's a scene in the movie Luther for Martin Luther. It's a movie that the mocks watch every Reformation, every Reformation month. And Luther is quoted as saying, you know, when Satan throws your sin in your face, you say, yes, I know that I deserve death and hell, but what of it? For I know one who has made satisfaction, Jesus Christ. Likewise, we suffer because of the world. We suffer because of God's and our many enemies. And so we must remember that Christ suffered the unjust attacks of the enemies. And sometimes we'll be mocked. Sometimes we will suffer the unjust attacks of the enemies. And that's okay. In fact, we are called blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let us then always examine ourselves, but always looking to Christ as we examine We should ask ourselves regularly, are we living in a certain sin that needs holy confession, that needs robust repentance? Is there a pattern of sin that needs to be uprooted? And if no sin can be identified, well, surely we can still see our suffering as God's way of humbling us. Surely, suffering humbles you. That is God's design in it. To, see, to help you to see your own weakness, your own dependence on him, your own need for his wisdom, for his patience, for his grace, for his perseverance, for his love. The Puritan says, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Yes, look at yourself. Paul tells the Corinthians at the end, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Yes, there is a godly self-examination, but we don't just look at ourselves. For every look that we take at ourselves, we must take ten looks at Christ. Yes, consider the self, but stay on the Savior. Focus 
on Him. Fix your eyes on what He has done, on who He is, on what He is doing, on the promises He has given you in His Word, on the shepherding hand with which He guides you by the ministry of His Spirit every day. Focus on what He has done, what He is doing, what He will do. This is exactly this is actually what David does throughout the psalm. He looks to God. Kevin DeYoung, in speaking on the third commandment, exhorts us to consider how we pray. Sometimes we're too casual or unthinking in our prayers. He says, this is how we pray sometimes. Dear God, we just come to you, God. Lord, you're awesome. Father, you died on the cross, Lord. And we just can't help but love and praise you for filling our hearts, Holy Spirit. Not only do our prayers like this make a mess of the Trinity, they use the Lord's name as if it were little more than a breath or a comma. We ought to be more careful. I wonder if you caught what made the mess of the Trinity. The Father had died on the cross, which of course he did not. David, however, is very careful with his prayers as he emphasizes the Lord's name. Five times in the first four verses, have you seen this? It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord. Verse 3, but you, O Lord, how long? Verse 4, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. And then three more times in verse 8 and 9, he mentions the Lord's name. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. You see that these tears, full of sorrow, are at the same time filled with faith. Recall in Psalm 4, verse 1, David prays, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now in Psalm 6, verse 2, he cries out, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. He pleads with the Lord for grace and the Lord alone because grace comes from above. Grace will look like justice towards the end of the psalm. But here, it also looks like healing. He is troubled down to his bones. He cannot isolate his pain to the spiritual realm. He's no Gnostic here. It's not just, well, I'm suffering in some spiritual sense. Even suffering in a spiritual sense hits him deep in his bones. He feels it in his body. This is an embodied pain, an embodied affliction. And the thought of his sin, the attacks of the world have made him languish. The attacks of his foes are not then diverted stoically. No, they are felt internally. How does God respond to that posture, to that pain? To use a bit of a humorous example, perhaps you've seen the show Seinfeld. There is a character in Seinfeld that it's called the soup Nazi. You know this character. You have to, if you want soup, apparently his soup is the best soup. 
But you have to go through the motions. You have to go, you have to follow the steps exactly if you want to get soup from this soup Nazi. You have to come in the right way. You have to come in attentive. You have to ask the right way. If you do one thing wrong, you are not getting any soup. And he says, nope, no soup for you. Get out. And I think sometimes we have that, we view God in that way. That we have to get all of our ducks in a row. We have to have everything lined up. We have to say all the exact, all the right way, all, all the right words in the right way, the right time, punching all the numbers, and then God will finally be favorable towards us. In other words, we have to be perfect before God can hear our plea, before God can hear our cry. But our God is not some grace Nazi God who says, no, no grace for you. Get out of here. You didn't ask the right way. Where were you last week when everything was going fine? And here you are when things aren't going fine. Now you're coming? I don't think so. He doesn't do that. He says, come. You need grace? I have an infinite store of it, of grace upon grace. You need mercy. You need comfort. You need patience. You need steadfastness. You need joy. You need love. You need self-control. You need wisdom. You need anything. I have it for you. Just come and ask, and I will give it. That's, that's what our God does. That's who our God is. He is a gracious God. He loves to pour His grace upon us. He loves to lavish His love upon us. Not just give us a little vial you know, of love, just, just gallons and gallons of love, just washing over us. Verse 4 says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And so as David cries out to the Lord for his grace, his basis of his cry is the love of God, is the steadfast love of the Lord. He prays with such confidence because of the Lord's covenant with David. And sometimes in the Psalms, David will, will say, Vindicate me, O Lord, because of my integrity. Vindicate me, God, because I haven't done anything wrong. And you're a God of justice. And this doesn't make any sense. Vindicate me. I'm sinless in this area. It's like the book of Job. Sometimes David will approach this. Sometimes the psalmist will approach God that way. And that's not an improper way to approach God. That's not what David does here. He builds his whole case on the rock-solid foundation of the love of God. Even in the face of all of David's sins... His sins do not threaten David's coming to God. In fact, his sins are the very reason he is coming to God. His sufferings are the very reason he's coming to God. He doesn't say, well, I've suffered too many times, so obviously the Lord doesn't care about me, so I'm not coming back to him. It's, I suffer, and now I'm coming to him. He doesn't say, well, I've sinned one too many times, I can't come. I've run out of tickets of admission into the throne of grace. I don't have any more. No, it's I've sinned, and there's only one person I can come to because of my sin, and it's God. Because God loves me. The Lord loves me, and so I come. And this confidence of David's is seen in God's hearing his plea. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. 
David doesn't act like the wicked. He doesn't act like the rebel. He doesn't give up hope. He knows that he has God's ear. He knows that when he calls, the Lord answers. He knows that the Lord is gracious to answer. What joy should fill our hearts, even in the face of affliction, even in the midst of tears? What joy should fill our hearts when we recall that the Lord loves to hear our plea? The Lord is not annoyed when we call upon his name. He's not upset. He doesn't wonder, what are they doing now? What do they want this time? It's all they want me for is just grace. Just want love. Such a needy people. He loves to hear our pleas. He loves to hear our cries. He loves it when we cry out to him. Like a good parent, he he hears our cries of desperation. He, He sees our neediness. He looks upon our weakness, and he listens. He does so with love. He does so with grace. The application point is clear then. We are to cry out to the only one who is eternally rich in grace. Now, in my life, I've known seasons of Intense anxiety and stress, conflict, emotional affliction, the kind of which that has affected my own health. I know that eating has been an issue at times. I know that it's hard to sleep. It's difficult to get a good night's sleep. I've not, I think I, uh, I took for granted a good night's sleep. You know what I'm talking about. All night long trying to, trying to pursue some sleep. Know what it's like for my health to, to be negatively affected by all the, the stress, all the conflict, spiritual issues. It hit the body. And sometimes these seasons of pain last a week, last a month, or carry on for what seems like an eternity. I know what it is like to flood the bed with tears. I know what it is like to drench the couch with weeping. Or more literally, to stain this floor over here with my tears. I know what that's like. I know what it's like for the eye to waste away because of grief. I mentioned at the start of this sermon that it's very timely. Professionally, as a church, but even personally, as a family, I won't share the news here, but on Tuesday night I received news that heart, the word heartbreaking doesn't even give it justice. And it's just the worst thing I could hear. And it's, it's painful. And I know how hard it is to go to sleep. I know how hard it is to, to talk with someone, to give counsel to someone as tears are streaming down the face. 
snot's running out of the nose. Do you know what it's like to be in that kind of pain? David does. And we're thankful that David does. We're thankful for the, the fact that many people in the Old Testament, New Testament, and beyond have experienced that kind of affliction, that kind of anxiety, that kind of heartache. And if you haven't, and you live long enough, you will. You see this question, O Lord, how long? It's used 16 times in the Psalms, and many, many other times outside the Psalms. The Lord wants us to cry out to him with confidence that he will hear us, with faith in his word, with fear of his name, with certainty of his steadfast love. Trust asks, how long, O Lord? And then waits however long. Faith says with Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's what faith says. Faith says, I don't Get it. I don't understand. Why am I in so much pain? Why is this church languishing? But I know the Lord has heard my plea. But I know the Lord has heard our cry. Faith says, I have not eaten well in months. These pews are drenched with my tears. But God loves me. Christ has given his own life for me. Christ has shed his own blood for this church. It is this posture, beloved, that moves us to worship God, as David does here in verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? What's David's meaning here? Is he saying that when you die, there's no more life after death? Certainly not. Elsewhere, in Psalm 139, verse 8, he affirms that even if he descends to Sheol, there the Lord is. David says, if I die, how can I remember you before everyone? How can I praise your name in the presence of the godly? How can I teach others your perfect ways? How can I adore you for your incredible grace if I'm gone? You see the same mindset with Paul as he deals with the Philippians, as he writes to them, and he's just, he's at odds. He's confused, struggling. He says, I would sure love to be with the Lord. It'd be great to just be away from this earth. No more sin, no more suffering. And I'd be with the Lord in perfect harmony, in perfect communion, and no more tears. He says, but... For you, Philippians, it'd be better if I stay. And so it was. If Paul had been taken by the Lord, we wouldn't have his great letter to the Philippians. A wonderful 
source of encouragement. David is saying, Lord, if I die, if all the righteous die, then only the wicked will remain. And so no praise to your gracious name will be heard in all the earth, except for the praise from the rocks. David knew his shorter catechism, question one. He knew that his chief end was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so he says, God, preserve my life that I may worship your name here and now before everyone. What does this mean for us then, dear ones, but that we are expected to worship God in our affliction? Often, when I see someone clearly suffering, or when that person comes to me for counsel, tears usually follow. And as soon as the tears come out, so do the apologies. I'm so sorry for crying. Now, at that point, I am not, I don't rebuke them. I'm gentle with them. But I did tell them, don't be sorry. It's okay. Cry. Those are, it's good to cry. You see how we've been taught by the world to not be vulnerable, to just show no pain. And so many choose not to worship because they've had a hard day, because it's too emotional. They said, I don't want to be fake. I don't want people to see me ugly cry. I'm not sure anyone looks good when they're crying, but there's that word, ugly cry. But I would say that that's the, that's the reason you should go. That's the reason you should go into the house of the Lord. Yeah, don't be fake. Never be fake. Be genuine. And come. Come with the Christ. Come with the tears. Come with the sorrow. Come with the heartache. Come with that embodied affliction. Come with that big weight, that burden upon your back. Because then you're coming to someone who can remove that burden. Then you're coming to someone who carries that burden for you. And you're coming to someone in worship who wipes away your tears. Before he wipes away all those tears in Revelation 21, though, based on Psalm 56, he collects those tears. He keeps them all in a bottle. Every single tear has a precious tear. And he keeps count of all of your tossings, all of your wanderings, all of the, the restless nights. He keeps count of all of those. And he uses all of those for his glory and for your good. The church can use a lot more people who know that we don't have it all together. Christ did not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. Psalms are meant to be sung and in corporate worship. And so we sing faith-filled, tear-filled songs. We're going to sing Psalm 6 whenever I'm done with this sermon. It's a faith-filled, tear-filled song. Can we sing of God's love even when the effect of that sin is all too real? Can we adore God for his power of reconciliation even when there is still a relational conflict? Can we praise Christ in a storm? Can we flood our, our bed with our tears even while we praise Jesus? 
I hope so. I really hope so. That's what our Lord did. Even as his father prepared Sheol as a bed for him. Consider Jesus' words in John 12. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's what our gracious God invites us to do. To worship him even while we face so much pain. And finally, we see David entrusting his cause to the Lord of perfect justice. Verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. So even as his foes have sought his destruction, he rebukes them and he drives them away. Perhaps as Abraham had, had driven away the birds when he prepared a sacrifice for his God. We remember his words in Psalm 5.5, that God does not delight in wickedness, that the boastful shall not stand in the presence of God. David knows that the Lord's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. He knows that God is a judge of all the earth, and as judge, God will always do what is right. David knows that. David knows that he's coming to a God of justice. And surely, verse 8 anticipates our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 7. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, drove out those who thought they kept the law. Depart from me. I never knew you. David's enemies, indeed all of God's enemies, will know a trouble in body and spirit that is categorically in a world different from David's world of pain or your period of affliction. Those who are outside of Christ will know no end to this embodied torment under the wrath of the Lord. And it is a hard thing to consider. For those who are in Christ, it is a comfort that justice one day will be served perfectly. And what do we do in the meantime? Because this psalm, there's faith. David has faith here. But you don't see the resolution of his concerns, of his complaints, of his cries. You just see that his spirit resolved is resolved to trust in the Lord. He knows that one day he will receive justice. He doesn't know when. And so what do we do? We entrust our afflicted heart to the God of justice. Dear ones, set your heart on the Lord who will do what is right exactly when it is right for him to do. For his timing is perfect. Cry out because of the injustice. Throw your hands up. Pray to the Lord, this is unjust, Father. This whole thing is grievous. A miscarriage of justice. A defiling of your glorious name, O God. Cry out to him. Then say, even so, God. Even so. You are good. You are just. Your timing is perfect. Your plan is wise. Hasn't he, dear children, already shown you this most perfectly in the most unjust act ever committed? He allowed, decreed even from all eternity, that his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, would know injustice like no other, would know suffering unspeakable, would know the wrath of God like, unlike anyone else. And he sent us his son 
to endure the greatest injustice, to fulfill perfect justice, and to give us eternal life. Samuel Rutherford said, The weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lies upon your strong Savior. Let us then, brothers and sisters, let out all the tears, exercise our God-given faith, entrust our trials to our God, and to worship Him all the more, all the more, because of them, because of all that God has done, is doing, and will do for His glory and for your good, no matter how hard and mysterious His plan seems to be right now. Because He is good. He is patient. He is just. He hears us. He loves us. And for us, it is more than enough. Indeed, more than we deserve. Let's pray. Our gracious God, even as we even as I was preaching, Lord, the, the many cries of our hearts come to you. We've considered our own past or present trials, and our hearts join with the psalmist here. We cry out to you, knowing that you, O oh Lord, will be gracious to us, that you will answer us when it is time, that you have heard our plea, that you will give us justice, that you have given us your Son. Help us, Lord, to be sustained. Help us to grow in faith and godliness, even in the face, even because of the trials of various kinds that you send our way. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.